0: Sometimes it appears that we're reaching a period when our senses and our minds will no longer respond to moderate stimulation. Truth is, to them, revealed rather than logically proved.
1: Salutations dear citizens as we peer into the new fund order to discover the immutable truth for asset management and wealth managers. The lowdown from the dark side, the frontier and the fringe of asset management and fund research.
0: And about which the most reckless conjecture cannot be discredited.
1: A podcast for wealth managers, fund selectors, distributors, and investors, bringing to you the People's Republic podcast of finance, in association with my sponsor, Allianz Global Investors, capturing the latest market news, views, and interviews with leading minds in our industry.
0: Subtlety is lost, and fine distinctions based on acute reasoning are carelessly ignored in a headlong jump to a predetermined conclusion.
1: Allianz Global Investors is one of the world's leading active managers.
0: Education is being redefined at the demand of the uneducated to suit the ideas of the uneducated.
1: And in today's episode, citizens, we're going to discuss cost transparency. Our guest today is Chetan Modi of 360 Fund Insight. A fund selector and analyst since 2006, and now founder of 360 Fund Insight and their cost analysis tool, Eagle Eye, just in case everyone's wondering why there's so many eagle noises in this episode. 360's philosophy is very much built around the idea of guided architecture, concentrating on outcome oriented solutions. Chet's previous roles include investment research analyst at Morningstar OBSR and, of course, a senior analyst at All Funds Bank SA. Market News. EU lawmakers overseeing new digital regulation in Europe want to force big tech companies to pay for news, echoing a similar move in Australia, says the Financial Times. MEPs working on the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act said the laws could be amended to include aspects of the Australian reforms. Meanwhile... Amsterdam overtakes London as Europe's top share trading centre, with average daily trading halving from €17.5 billion to €8.6 last month. And experts say the symbolic blow could be followed by the city losing jobs. QPMG chief Bill Michael resigns after condemning moaning staff on conference call. Chairman of the Big Four accountant railed against employees playing the victim during Covid. Continuing malaise for German payments company Wirecard after its admission that nearly $2 billion of the company's funds had gone missing. Imperial Brands, formerly known as Imperial Tobacco Group, saw a shareholder revolt over the pay of its new CEO, Stefan Baumhardt says the Times. Just over 40% of shareholders voted against his £1.27 million salary. Plenty of ongoing positive coverage of SharingAlpha.com led by Orin and Yuval Kaplan, which has been recently quoted in Reuters as the world's largest fund rating platform through its innovative wisdom of the crowd and track ratings performance model. Lastly, plenty of coverage on Elon Musk's promotion of Bitcoin on Twitter. Then his company Tesla spending $1.5 billion on it in January, says Kidlin Ostrov and Rebecca Elliott in the Wall Street Journal. And we'll be covering Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and what it means for finance and society later in the season. And that's the end of market news tag hashtag new fund order and let me know what stories I should be covering. And in these strange pandemic lockdown times, Rest assured that all guests are calling in remotely. And it's great to have you on the podcast, Chet, and welcome to the new fund order.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure.
1: And of course, what I was really hoping to talk to you about today, Chet, was, I guess, this massive topical subject for all fund selectors, which is fund transparency, cost due diligence and analysis uncovering the true cost of uh, fund management
2: yeah and, and you know that is one of the main reasons why we wanted to to start our, our firm um you know the the regulations so the, you know the asset management market study MIFID to um you know wholesale changes in regulation um really to provide better transparency and governance and and i think um, you know, we wanted to take the spirit of that regulation rather than you know, asking the regulator to be too prescriptive um, and trying to achieve those goals of, of better transparency and, and governance. And, and part, of, part of that process is better costs and charges data, more accurate, um, more granularity. Um, and, you know, that fundamentally is the bedrock of value for money analysis, which is, is critical at the moment.
1: Absolutely, Chet. And of course, um, like myself, you cut your cloth as a a fund analyst, as a fund selector. And, you know, I really was intrigued to know why move away from fund selection to start your own firm? And what was the problem that you wanted to fix uh, as you saw it?
2: I think as a fund selector, you know, you're sort of doing your job, um, you know, picking out funds that you you think are best for your clients. Um, But, you know, there's a whole load of work that goes on beyond that and, and sort of trying to bridge that gap between, um, you know, sitting at my desk and, and saying, well, you know, this is a great fund between actually it getting down to the kind of retail client and how how does that happen? Um, and within the sort of framework of the new regulation, you know, there is a massive obligation on part of the, the advisor or wealth manager to, to prove they've done some governance around cost and charges, to show audit trails around that, because, it, you, know, you know, picking the wrong share class, um, you know, really compromises best execution as well, which is also something you have to prove uh, under MIFID two.
1: I don't know about yourself, Chet, but certainly when I went through the first part of my career, I, you know, you faced a number of, I guess, biases and issues. And I think it's fair to say that fund selection has perhaps grown up. You know, what were the main Biases and issues that you faced as a as a fund selector.
2: If I buy one share class of a particular fund over another, is it still competitive? And and I think you know this is one of the problems I faced in in a in a a former life, which is you sort of recommend a fund, you put it in a model portfolio. Not all of the fund share classes are available across all of the platforms. So if I'm an advisor and I I buy a fund for my client uh, and I'm buying what's available on my platform, but there is a cheaper share class available elsewhere. Or another fund with another with a cheaper share class that might help improve the returns of my client. How do I know? Measuring the track record of a fund, you have to pick a share class. And you don't know if that share class is available to advisors or not based on on the platform. Another issue is, like, I would say, the difficulties in 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 recommending boutiques over over larger firms. So one of my experiences was, you know, having to recommend a, a boutique. Uh, or I would say wanting to recommend a boutique. And the work I had to do over and above the sort of normal due diligence process, purely because of the fact that, you know, my peers and and maybe the industry had not heard of that particular boutique. So I think it's much easier if there is sort of ongoing governance and due diligence of a fund that's on your recommended list from one of the larger asset managers. And I want to add another fund from that asset manager. It becomes quite easy for me um, from a due diligence perspective. But if I want to recommend a, a boutique asset manager that many people probably haven't heard of that, that creates a lot of difficulties, and and I think create technology that makes that decision-making process a bit easier, where you're sort of taking a, a an unbiased view towards whether an asset manager is large or small, and 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 comparing them based on the, the strategy, the share class, you know, and all of those sorts of things. You, you know, you sort of level the playing field, and obviously you've written a lot about super tanker funds as well. So, how do we help that? Um, because there are a lot of boutiques, that, but they just get overlooked for some of the reasons that i've mentioned sometimes they're just not available on platforms and platforms will not on board them because um you know there's not enough assets in in those particular share costs or there's not enough assets in, in 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 the strategies that you're trying to uh, invest in so uh, you know you sort of then you start touching on that kind of platform gatekeeper issue as well which is sort of you know probably a reflection of of
1: infrastructure
2: inefficiencies, efficiencies um, if, it, if it means that it's so difficult to onboard uh, a boutique asset manager
1: the tide is has become even more difficult for for boutique asset managers because if i was playing devil's advocate with you you know for the first half of my career fund selectors didn't necessarily think about cost in the same way that they do today and because of many of the business models that straddle through our our industry It doesn't favour boutiques either, right? Because size does matter in terms of getting uh, third party supplier costs down, etc. So, if anything, now it's it's, it's almost doubly more difficult because fund buyers are in a a post commission environment and they're suddenly much more concerned about cost, particularly since MIFID 2. You know, the inherent business models of fund management haven't changed along with that so it, it does feel like that's a almost mission impossible for boutiques at times
2: yeah I, I agree and I think you know part of that reason is, is probably um, marketing and distribution budget you know the larger players obviously would have more you know more budget to, to, to spend on getting their story out there and you know I think boutiques or smaller asset managers have to be more mindful of that because sponsoring a, a, a taxi or something like that is is, is just not it's not plausible for them. So, but you know, I think you have to sort of separate the issue of cost versus the issue of value for money. And, and you know, they don't necessarily go hand in hand. Um, you know, costs and charges, if you've got the right, you know, data and inputs, you can do quite clear value for money analysis. Value for money has to sort of be the bedrock of, of analysis going forward. And I think, you know, asset managers, um, large and small, um, probably have to think about how they get their story forward in terms of value for money, uh, making sure their cost and charges are are appropriate to the strategies and, and being transparent about it. Because I think if they're not transparent, um, you know, the asset managers sort of risk scoring a known goal in, in some ways because people will just lean towards cheaper cost, um, which is, you know, essentially what you know, we, we're sort of trying to avoid. We, we do believe in, in active management, and I think there is a place for that. Um, um, and, and so, you know, that essentially, that's a lot of the work that we've been doing um, over the past three years, I would say.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Chet. And I think you mentioned uh, super tanker funds earlier, and belying that the idea of slippage costs in the way that fund trades in and out of the market. But it feels as if. Portfolio turnover costs and trading costs and slippage still remain quite taboo.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's always going to be difficult. I mean, it is interesting how the industry sort of finds it difficult to agree on many points that might uh, improve transparency. I mean, that's just a, a sort of personal opinion. But I think they vary quite significantly uh, based on, on, on how you report them. And, and I would say... You know i think you probably know more than me actually but the larger funds probably have a bit of an advantage in that they could um force down that some of those costs um a bit cheaper and um, i think for us one of the the interesting bits is the way that sort of additional costs such as marketing and distribution are allocated to specific share classes um so i think you know transparency is certainly around transaction costs um having a kind of Methodology that that everyone can trust, um, but also a bit more transparency about how those additional costs are allocated to different share classes, I I think, is also quite an interesting point to, to sort of investigate further.
1: Well, transparency is a bit like a, a byline, just like ESG, right? Suddenly everybody is on board and suddenly everybody's transparent. Fund selectors, you know, we can forgive them for being a little bit cynical uh, about that. Uh, what are the, some of the other big revelations that you've uncovered from your analysis uh, with the, the Eagle Eye tool?
2: You know, asset managers or the industry as a whole, I would say, could probably do a better job. I don't know if you read The Times on on Monday. Um Funds flouting new transparency rules, um, and so you know the value for money assessments haven't gone um, t- too well. Uh, I would say in terms of uh, how how they are how they've been published, being able to find them. Um, I think also interestingly is how custody costs our um, our charge. So. In some of our analysis, we we've seen a big variation in in custody costs that are that are passed down to investors, and you know that variation. We sort of looked at that and thought, okay, well, why is one asset manager paying you know significantly more? Well, we're talking you know single digit basis points, but but it all sort of adds up. Um, you know, why are they paying more for custody uh, versus any other asset manager? Now, there may be some kind of technical reasons behind it, but to my mind and to our to our sort of thinking is well, actually. Could the asset managers, um, you know, force down those those custody costs a bit more? Could they be more competitive uh, on those? Is it something they're actually thinking about? Because the, you know, that cost is essentially just passed down to the investor. So, you know, do they need to be competitive about it? Because um, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily affecting their margin. It does affect probably the the headline OGC, um, uh, but you know, again, the OGC is is something you pay after. The, after the investment not before
1: it certainly does feel like boutiques have no pricing power at all in terms of custody but i just wonder if we're almost waiting for some sort of kind of technology revolution in in custody what we're seeing going on right now in the settlement side and the the news from the likes of uh, bank de france and calistone which are now starting to use blockchain technology and that seems quite an exciting you know do we feel that that is going to just expand now through the fun industry
2: well I, I certainly hope so i think i think all of these kind of technological developments are are, are, are needed um and i think you know it, it it's about how willing you know people are um to, to embrace these these technological um improvements so i wouldn't say for example you know fund companies um I wouldn't say that they are not transparent. I would say, actually, the data is all there. It's just quite difficult to find it. Calistone has done an amazing job at at sort of being disruptive in that space, um, you know, in the sort of trade execution space. They went to sort of um, uh, flat fees uh, for for trades. I think that's a massive help. But I think fundamentally, uh, you know, technology... You have to sort of embrace that, the disruption element of that. Um, and and if, you're, you know, if you're a CEO of an asset manager, let's say it's potentially listed as well, uh, and you've got the decision to, to embrace some technology that could hit your bottom line uh, in the short run or you know, affect your top line revenue, um, but in the long run it's doing the right thing for the industry and, and, and all participants and all investors, uh, I think that's a difficult call. For for asset managers, um, the leadership of asset managers. Essentially, you know, the question is, you know, what is the appetite to, to do the right thing? Essentially, the technology will force you to do it. Um, are you going to do it before it forces you, or are you going to be proactive in that? And, and I think you know, companies like callstone have you know, done great things around that. I, I think there's more companies that will will be doing the same, and and if, um, and, and and we'll start to see. Asset managers that are actually adding value, um, you know, through their investment management fees, you know, level the playing field, because right now, you know, everything just seems to be about cost and the cheaper, the better. Well, because if, if we don't do it, I, I think there are sort of big threats, because what's stopping, you know, Google or an Amazon coming in and saying, well, you know, the asset manager's done a terrible job, we can help you. Um, and, and consumers know those brands better than they do the asset manager brands. So I, I, you know, if we don't start doing the right things, uh, yeah, we could get into problems further down the line.
1: Yeah, we were talking about technology there. And of course, one form of technology has been around, now around for over 20 years. And of course, that's the exchange traded fund. And I just wondered if you felt that ETFs present fund selectors with efficiencies versus traditional mutual funds. What What is your analysis telling you?
2: So I think in certain cases, they they can probably um, provide efficiencies. I, I, I think, you know, if I'm looking for kind of broad exposure, quick exposure, you know, some kind of tactical trading around funds, I think they absolutely make sense as long as the sort of bid offers don't don't sort of make it more expensive, um, for example. But, I, you know, I think and I sort of saw something um, recently that the, the, the FCA or, or I think it might be the Treasury is, is looking at. The actual fund structure itself, and seeing if it if it could be more efficient. Um, I think we could do something around that. Um, but I think ETFs probably do provide efficiencies in some cases. But if I'm a long-term investor and I'm going to hold a fund for you know ten years plus, uh, I, th- I think there's probably efficiency. The gap between them probably narrows over the long term.
1: You've also had the the benefit of looking across markets, um, across Europe, and you know, which ones do you believe offer fund selectors the best value currently? And of course, I have to then ask which ones you felt were probably the worst based on your analysis.
2: Yeah, so I, I mean, yeah, maybe I'm a little bit biased here, but but I think the UK, you know, they, they've they've got the the toughest regulation um i would say in my experience advisors here use probably two maybe three platforms and, and i think the experience in, in europe is probably they only use one uh, uh, platforms in europe where i might only be using one platform. Like, well i'm i'm sort of relying on that platform to to do the sort of best execution at the share class level for me I, i'm not necessarily looking at the open market europe probably has a you know two years post mifid now you know, it has an opportunity. Europe now has an opportunity to just sort of take a bit of a, a clean sheet of paper and say, well, actually, let's just do uh, what is right, create new infrastructure and, and create a really competitive landscape. As a result of that, you know, the um, the end investor should should benefit. Are,
1: are there any countries that you feel are still behind the curve?
2: Um, oh, I don't want to name names, <laughs> Jenji. <Judy>. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, I mean, look. I think I think continental Europe. Um, I certainly think sort of uh, Spain, Italy, um, uh, Switzerland probably have um, have work to do. Um, but I think the pace of change is quicker. So they could you know, they could very quickly get to a place if they if they just embrace the regulation and take what the spirit of the regulation is is, is trying to achieve. Massive improvements and efficiencies that can be gained if, if advisor firms just embrace all of the technology that's out there
1: everyone seems to want to uh, i guess advertise their governance credentials what's your what's your thought on the the future direction i guess of you know the dublin versus the lux versus the uk fund industry um you know is that race going to continue do you think they will continue to compete with each other do you think the, the uk can remain competitive
2: um that's a that's a really good question and uh very difficult one, JP. <laughs> Thanks for putting me on the spot. Um, you know, I think the UK has an interesting sort of position here because, um, you know, they, they could do something quite interesting uh, in terms of uh, improving governance. Um, will it mean that will spread to, to other countries? I, I, I don't know because, you know, fundamentally there's tax implications you have to kind of consider as well. And and if, if they override um, uh, the... the the improvements in governance and or, uh, and efficiency that you might gain, you know, domiciling in Dublin versus the UK, I, you, you know, fundamentally, it's a, it's a commercial decision that will drive that, um, and and I think that's going to be quite interesting. And um, so, all of those kind of domiciles, they make it easier for asset managers to be there, um, uh, uh, make it cheap for them to be there, um, because fundamentally. Know, there is a cost of being there, and if they're not gathering the assets, and if you're a smaller asset management company, you're not likely to spend a load on marketing and distribution in a a jurisdiction that is probably not core to you
1: yeah i don't want to uh i don't want to endanger your neutrality i think when it comes to fund jurisdictions jet i know that we have a broad audience listening to this and of course the trade bodies that represent each of those uh, jurisdictions are fighting hard right to uh you know to maintain their their asset base and indeed try to grow it and they are you know aggressively trying to compete with each other so i appreciate appreciate the candor rapid fire round now, before you go, uh, Chet, I, I've been asking every guest to answer a quick, rapid fire round of 10 questions, plus one bonus question. Uh, and these are, of course, just gut feel, one answer. Um, are you ready?
2: Uh, yeah, as, as much as I'll ever be, I guess.
1: <laughs> okay, let's get started. Question number one Bull or bear? Bull. Bogle or Buffett? Buffett. Divest or engage?
2: Oh, that's a tough one. Um,
1: Divest. Lower cost or better value?
2: Better value.
1: Supertankers or boutiques? Boutiques. Star managers or team players? Team players. Public or private? Public. High growth or stable income? Stable income, and the last one, which everyone loves to hate, is socialism or free markets.
2: Somewhere in between. Is that allowed? <laughs> uh, politics is not that binary, is it? Uh, I would say, I would say free market.
1: Great stuff. Bonus round. Government bonds or Bitcoin. Oh.
2: <laughs> um, I might have to say Bitcoin actually.
1: That marks the end of the interview Chet. you have survived the new fund order and I just want to say thanks very much for coming on.
2: Well thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks very much Chet. Please don't forget to like and share and subscribe. you know click the subscribe button. A new podcast every two weeks with a new guest. Stay tuned. So what do we think, citizens? This idea of cost transparency has a number of unexpected and unforeseen consequences. It's also, in some ways, has actually hampered free competition in asset management. More importantly, what we can see is there's a rising war between the aggregators, the super tanker-sized asset managers, versus the smaller boutiques. as allocators are using passive and ETF based products more and more today. They have their purposes and I think that fund selectors need to be more engaged. Lastly is this idea of competition between fund jurisdictions right. We're seeing this increasingly acidic tone and narrative being played out by the different uh, fund trade associations, the different jurisdictions, the different domiciles. Which destinations offer best value, both in terms of headline cost, but also cost transparency? And therein, which actually offer the best governance and the best oversight controls to protect your clients' money? The stark reality, citizens, is that some fund jurisdictions are just simply charging you too much as fund investors and that the transparency in some countries just isn't where it needs to be. There is a degree of regulatory variance and regulatory arbitrage that's occurring at the local level.
0: Life is visceral rather than intellectual. And the most visceral practitioners of life are those who characterize themselves as intellectuals.
1: A big thanks to you, dear listener, for tuning in, brought to you by my sponsor, Allianz Global Investors. And a warm thanks to today's guest. Legally, I am compelled to remind everyone that all views of this podcast are, of course, independent and do not belong to any affiliation or organisation. Just in case that was in any doubt. Tune in for the next podcast every two weeks from the New Fund. Please subscribe, share, like, and comment. Let me know what you think and what you'd like covered in future episodes. Until then, stay safe and keep it left field.
0: The lessons of the past are ignored and obliterated in a contemporary antagonism known as the Generation Gap. A spirit of national masochism prevails, encouraged by and a feat core of impudent snobs who characterize themselves as intellectuals.